Amen. Thank you, Daniel. Children's Church, head off with the Stewarts um, for Children's Church. And while they're headed out, if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are blazing through 1 Peter here at breakneck speed. 1 Peter chapter 2. and We're in 1 Peter as a study and we're calling it weird. Uh, that there, the, the word weird there means of supernatural origin. Uh, something uncanny, something unusual about our lives, our lives as believers. There ought to be things about our lives, the nature of our lives, the core of our lives. It ought to be weird to those around us, and weird in, in, a, in a godly way. Again, weird in a grace-filled way. Uh, something supernatural. Again, these believers were suffering. They were paying a price uh, due to their faith. They were ostracized. They were outcasts. And yet Peter is commanding, uh, again, that they obey, that they trust. And last week we, we looked at the command to, to love, to love fervently, to, to love one another as you and I have been loved. E- even that is weird. Loving, loving people simply because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of us in here have very little in common outside of that, but that's enough. And we said many, many weeks ago when we began this series that the key to 1 Peter is in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that, it is the true, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We stand firm in grace. Everything that Peter writes is grace. And he's saying, believers, stand firm in it. And what we see today is the fourth in a string of of imperatives, we said, of commands, and they all flow from grace. In verse 15 and 16, Peter said, Since God has caused you to be born again, and he who caused you to be born again is holy, be holy. And in verses 17 through 21, he said that since God is our not only our Father, but He has judged and He has ransomed us at such a high price, he says, conduct yourselves in fear. Live in fear of him who not only is father, but him who is he who's judge. And last week, we talked about being born again with an incorruptible seed that is the word. We're family. And the response to that was that we love one another fervently. Why? Because we've been loved. And Peter begins to place a huge emphasis on the word of God in verses 23 through 25. And he will build on that today. He says in verse 23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Everything flows out of grace. Everything flows out of our identity as the people of of God. Family. Even how we're to to love one another and love one another fervently. Why? Because we've been loved that way. We we said last week in 1 John 4, 19, we know love. Why? Because God first loved us. He's shown us. We looked at John 13, 34, and 35 that the badge, the badge of a Christian, what, what is the telltale sign of a Christian is that we love one another. This is how the world will know, he says, that you are my disciples. How? Love one another. We're family. 
And in Christ, we have been born again. That word again literally could be translated, we have been born from above. And what, what prompted that? Romans 10, 14 through 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what? It's the Word. It's the Word that prompts. That's why Paul says, I came to you preaching nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the Word. The Word. When, we're, when we share the gospel with somebody, when we preach the gospel, it's got to be word-saturated because it is the word that awakens the soul. It is the word that takes the blinders, 2 Corinthians 4. It's not my wisdom. It's the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And that's what Peter has said. We have been born again through an imperishable seed that is the word of of God. And, and what he goes on here is to say that which, which, re, which prompted that new birth, he's saying, feast on it. Feast on it. Not, again, everything that he says here over the next, in chapter two, he's going to give us three different identities. He's going to give us an identity, and then he's going to give us a responsibility that goes with that identity. And he's showing us stand firm in grace. And the identity, you see it on your handout, the one we'll look at today in verses 1 through 3, the identity, believers are pictured as the children of God. Infants, born again, born from above. The responsibility that he says that goes with that is that we nurture this new life by putting away sin and growing up in respects to salvation through the nourishment of the Word. That Word which prompted which awakened our hearts to salvation is the same word that the same word that saved us is the same word that we live off of that we grow up in. And, and, and that's the main point of what he says here in, in verse, verses 1 through 3. The main point is as the people of God, we must feast on the word so that we will grow up in respects to salvation. Grow up. It's not just about getting saved, it's about growing up, it's about maturing. Salvation goes way beyond just salvation. It's way beyond just about you. Don't make it just about you and me. It's about growing up, that we would accurately represent our Father, that we could do His kingdom work, that we would be His ambassadors, that we would, that we would represent Him everywhere we go. You go all the way back to Genesis 1, 31. That's the point, that we would be His representatives. Literally, that wherever we go, the world would see Him through us. Sin, sin certainly marred that, and yet in salvation, God is recreating that. He is restoring us to that which He originally intended. That we would accurately reflect His character and His image everywhere we go. Do people see Him in you? We're His ambassadors. Just like your kids. Anybody ever told your kids or anybody ever told you, you remind me so much of your mama? You remind me so much of your daddy. Spiritually speaking, as believers in Christ, do, do people say that? Man, you remind, me, you remind me of my heavenly father. They ought to see our father. They ought to see our characteristic of our father in us. Again, that's why he said way back in, in verse 15 and 16, be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. 
our, our responsibility is to, is to grow up that we represent Him. And, and look at verse 2, verse, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we, we've said that before. When you read, therefore, He's building what He says here based upon what He just said. The same word that was preached to you, that ushered in new life, that brought new life, is the same word that you're to feast on. He's building on this new birth, and he's building on the source of that new birth was the word of God. When, when we become a believer, we, we are a baby. We are an infantile Christian. We don't just get saved and then, you know, the whole word of God is downloaded to us and we're mature. No, we're infantiles. Everything about it is, is different. And we're to grow up in that. And the issue here, again, is growing up. It's growing up spiritually to who we are in Christ. And when, when we come to Christ, again, we're adopted into His family, and the Bible pictures this as, as, again, being born again. You can go to John 3 with Nicodemus. Can, can, how do you enter your mother's womb again, he says? He says, that's not the point. As Christians, you're born again. You're, bo you're now born from above. Your first birth was of natural, earthly means. Your second birth is of heavenly. It's spiritual. It's through the Word. Everything is new to us. This, the, the, the ethic that we lived in the flesh is now, is now opposite to that ethic that we learn of in Christ. Everything is upside down. Once we thought that you would serve by, by being served, that you would lead by being served. Now Jesus says, no, you lead by serving. Before we thought we expected others to give up their lives for us, and now we lead by giving our lives up for others. Before we thought that the, the first will be first, and now Jesus says, no, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. We've got to grow up in that. And when we're rescued by God's grace, when we're adopted into His family and adopted into His people, we come as children, we come as infants, and we have to grow up in respect to our salvation, grow up in our, our identity as the people of God. Some would call it sanctification. Some would call it, you know, the, the, it's the reason why the Bible talks about discipleship because we've got to grow up and the Word, the Word is absolutely irreplaceable if you're going to grow up. Just, just because, we'll see it, just because you've been a Christian for 10, 15, 25, 30 years doesn't mean that you're mature. That's the unfortunate, that's the unfortunate reality. Just hanging around a church, just hanging around the people of God, just being associated with people of God doesn't make you a mature believer. Feasting on the Word of God makes you a mature believer. Eating right food, namely the Word of God, causes you to grow up in respects to salvation. Consequently, or, or opposite of that, neglecting the Word of God stunts your growth spiritually. It, you're, are you a believer? Maybe, but you're immature. And the effects of that are what we see. The, the center of what Peter says here in verses 1 through 3 is crave the Word so that you will grow up. Everything else, that what Peter, what Peter teaches us here is that it's our personal duty to be nourished by the Word. A per, it is your duty. It is your responsibility. Everything else that Peter says here in verses 1 through 3, in the Greek you would call them participle clauses. They, they participate in the main clause. Everything else that we see goes along with Paul, Peter's emphasis of you growing up. 
Everything else you see participates in that. That is the essential command that you crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in respects to salvation. That, that is the, the command here in verses 1 through 3. These others just show us, you know what, if that's really someone's heart, these others will participate in that. But the central command is feasting on the Word of God. And, and I thought about this all week, and, and forgive me, on, on you know, Mother's Day, to, to use this illustration, my mother-in-law tried to talk me out of it last night, but I think it works. Um, so if you don't like it, blame me. If you, or if you like it, blame me. If you don't like it, tell her she was right. But, but I thought about it all week. I thought about a diet. You know, only, I mean, good, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. It shows I have a long way to go in this endeavor. I've got a book coming out, How to Woo Mothers on Mother's Day. Um, how to bless them. But, but think about this. Think about this. We all hate the idea of a diet. I get it. The, the main goal, though, in dieting is what? It's to lose weight. That's central. But in order for that to happen, there are other things that participate in that goal. There are other things that participate that help you work out the diet to reach the goal of losing weight. Namely, eating differently, exercising. There are a lot of things that take place that come alongside your goal to lose weight. They're the outflows of your goal of losing weight. Weight, but losing weight is the main point. These other things are helping you to lose weight. I mean, listen, you're not exercising for fun. Nobody just gets up and says, you know, I want to exercise. I want to sweat. I want to hurt tomorrow when I wake up. Nobody does that. And if you do that, you're weird <laughs> in the wrong way. Now, I know a few people in here would love to just get up in the morning and go running. Their names will go nameless, but I just stay away from them because it's convicting. I mean, seriously, nobody likes to eat cardboard. I like flavor in my food. Nobody wants to eat stuff that doesn't taste good, just for fun. Look, why are you doing that? Because you want to lose weight. You're doing that because you have another goal in mind. And if you're going to lose weight, listen, you're going to have to avoid some foods, namely the foods that got you to where you are. You're going to have to crave new foods. You're going to have to learn to enjoy new foods. And, and, and let's be honest, we, we try to go about it. Many of us will go about a diet and try to lose weight without ridding ourselves of the bad food, without developing new cravings, and it doesn't work. We don't want to eat differently, so what we say, well, I'll just exercise more. Listen, every expert will tell you, you can't exercise, bad, you can't exercise away bad eating habits. You can't do it. And we try to do that spiritually. Well, I'll just do this more. I'll just do this more. I'll do this to overcome the immaturity. It doesn't work that way. Or, 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 or we'll say, well, I'll just starve myself. It doesn't work. Eventually, you got to eat. Or we'll just, we say, well, I'll just go to extreme and I'll just eliminate a certain food altogether. Well, listen, at some point, you got to eat. It doesn't work. At some point, you're going to have to eat. You can't avoid it. And unless there's a new mindset, unless there's a new attitude, unless there's new tastes, listen, we eventually go back to the habits that got us in trouble in the first place. And ultimately, ultimately, again, in a diet, it goes beyond just losing weight. There needs to be new habits, attitudes, again, not just mix in old habits or new habits with old habits. 
It doesn't work that way. We have to adopt a bigger picture. And, and again, the goal of our, in, in the same way, the goal of our salvation, the goal of our redemption goes way beyond your personal salvation. It involves that. Don't hear me. Don't, don't label me a heretic. It involves that. But don't, you can't stop there. You see it on your handout. The goal of God redeeming us and adopting us and making us a part of his family and people goes way beyond you personally. We, we make everything about us. And listen, God is up to something far bigger than just you personally. We, we make ourselves central to everything. We, we interpret passages solely based on us. We read, we read ourselves into passages that have nothing to do with us. We hijack passages and make them about us. It's not about you individually. It's not only about you. It's not only about me. I mean, this may shock some of us, but you're not the main player and you're not the main purpose in salvation. God and His glory are the main player and the main purpose in salvation. Go to Isaiah. Every, you can track it through the whole Bible. God does everything for His glory. His glory. He involves us. We participate for sure. But ultimately, it's about His glory. Again, look at 2.9. We'll get there eventually. But look at 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you can sit back and relax and just have a ticket into heaven. Nope, doesn't say that. So that you can live however you want to live. No. So that, here's what it says, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Why, why is God doing what he's doing? That he, that, that he would be glorified. Go to Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men so that seeing your good deeds, they may do what? They may glorify your Father who's in heaven. Ultimately, it's about reflecting attention and glory and praise to the one who has saved us, not taking it ourselves, not being a cul-de-sac of praise. We are conduits of praise. We are to pass them on. We are to reflect them on to our Heavenly Father. And again, the purpose of God reconciling us to himself was that we would declare his awesomeness, that we would declare his excellencies. Does he love us? Yes. But even that goes back to his character. I, yesterday morning in my quiet time, I was, I was reading in, in Deuteronomy, and I, I read the first 12 chapters of Deuteronomy, and, and, and it struck me again in, in chapter 9 of Deuteronomy. Listen to what he says to Israel. This isn't in my notes. This is why sermons, go, again, I say that every week. This is why they go too long. But this passage just stuck with me. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you. They're talking about possessing the, the land of Canaan. They're, they're, Joshua is, or Moses is giving them the law a second time, telling them, hey, you're about to go into the land. I'm about to, God is about to give you the land. Don't fall in the same trap your fathers did where they were, they were, God killed them in the wilderness because of their unbelief. But when you get there and he's warning them, this is the second time he's done this, and he's warning them. Listen to what he says. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, talking about the Canaanites, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me into the, to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you in order to confirm an oath which the Lord swore to your fathers. God's saying, you know why I'm doing this? Because I'm faithful to my word. It's not your righteousness, 
knowing then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess because you are a stubborn people. He says that about three times. Go down to verse 13. Remember, do not forget how you provoked. He goes on this long list. It's because of God's faithfulness. Why does he love Chris Basham? Not because Chris Basham is awesome. Not because Chris Basham wore a suit today. That shocked y'all. I've gotten eight. I'm, it's a tally. Eight people have asked me if I'm doing a funeral. Eight. No, not that I know of. I, again, contrary to rumors, I do not have a job interview that I know of this afternoon either. I just thought for this the first, I just wanted to know what Tom Guthrie and what Ernie feel like on a Sunday morning. That's what I wanted to know. It's probably the most, first time some of you have ever paid attention to me. Finally, he wore a suit and dressed reverently. Irreverent joker. Amen, Bill. Oh, yeah, and Bill wears a suit, too. Forgive me. How could I think, overlook Bill? He, he's told me about eight times, if you'd wear a suit every day, I'd give you a tie every month. That's probably why I don't wear a suit. No, just kidding. No, I just, I don't want clothes to be an issue. I want you to wear clothes, but I don't want them to be an issue. Okay. <laughs> Thought I'd wear a suit today. See how many times I'd shock people. But listen, the goal, of, the goal of God redeeming us, you see it on your handout, it's ultimately God's glory in restoring a right relationship between God and His creation, but also His creation with each other. He's reconciling a people that He created back to Himself, but He's also reconciling you and I to one another. If, if, if we go over to 1 Peter 3.18, listen to what it says. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Listen, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. What was the goal of him dying? It was reconciling a sinful creation back to a holy God. It was making a way. If you go to the end of Exodus, Moses builds this tabernacle and Moses is not able to enter the tabernacle. Why? Because Moses isn't holy and only holy people enter God's presence. That's where Leviticus comes in. The sacrificial system in Luke, I mean Leviticus 15 and 16, the day of atonement. Now God's people can now enter his presence. Why? Because they're holy. God in crucifying Christ is, is declare, making a way for you to be declared righteous and him to maintain his righteousness in forgiving a sinner. Romans 3.23, so that God may be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. As a righteous judge, he can't just sweep our sin under the rug. He can't just act like it didn't happen. And it's about, it's about his glory. It's about a father reconciling his, his sons and daughters back to himself, making a way for that to be done rightly. And again, Peter shows us here the, that what he shows us, it's the specific dynamics between not only God and His people, but God's people and other people. That's why He says to love one another. The key characteristic of us as a church, us as believers, love one another. Even in Galatians 6, it says, Do, all, do good to all people, especially, especially those of the household of faith. Especially. Love one another. How do we do that? Look at how you've been loved. Look at how God has loved you, sacrificially. No greater love has a man than this, than what? He laid out his life for his friends. 
give up yourself. Again, the badge that tells us that we are God's disciples is that we love one another. It's how the world will know, again, the weirdness about us. Why do they love each other sacrificially? Why do they love people that have nothing in common with? Why do they even love people that, that maybe has offended them and hurt them and wounded them? Because I first wounded and offended and sinned against the holy God, and yet he forgave me. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. We know how to love. Why? By looking at how God first loved us. That's weird. And in salvation, we are reconciled to God, but we are reconciled to each other. Right relationships, new creation, new family. That's how. That's the context of 1 Peter 2. That's how it fits. And every one of the commands, he's going to say, this is what it looks like. I'm going to explain to you your identity, your new identity as a people. And, and this is where, again, even you know, Daniel and I were talking the other day. We, we go to lunch every, every other week, every other Wednesday and chat and just make sure we're on the same page and all that and... And, and he talked about it last week with the love of God. The love of God is so just magnanimous. It's so huge. It, 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 we don't really grasp it. And we, you know, it's hard to grasp it with just one word. Even our identity as the people of God. The, the reason why the Bible calls us a flock and sheep and a building and a royal priesthood and children and all those things is because it's huge. Who we are is so huge God is giving us glimpses in a lot of different ways to help us explain the dynamic of who we are. We'll see in the coming weeks, not only are we children, but we're a building. And not only are we a building, we're priests. And every single one of those are specific. They come, there's an identity and there's a responsibility. As priests, you can go back to Romans 12. What's our job as priests? What did the priests do? The priests offered spiritual sacrifices on behalf of the people. What is Romans 12, 1? Therefore, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Where is that that rooted? You're a believer priest. My role, your role as a believer is to offer sacrifices to the Lord, namely our lives. To give up our lives on behalf of the one who gave his life up for us. Knowing, as we saw, that one day, not only is he father, he's judge, and one day there is a reward waiting for us. And every single one of the things here that we see, we're about to look at a couple of them, they they go along with what it means to grow up. What it means to feast on the word and grow up in respects to salvation. They all go together. They're going to show our responsibility. And the first thing, look at verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. The first thing, if we're going to grow up, it's put away sin. Put it away. The the word Peter Peter uses here, it literally is a picture of someone taking off a garment. He's saying if we're going to grow up, not only as the people as individually, but if we're going to be united, if you're going to be united as the people of God, if if we're going to be united as a family of God, if we're going to mature as God's people, we've got to rid ourselves of all of these attitudes. Bottom line, we've got to hate sin. Sin can't be excused, it can't be lessened, it can't be condoned, it can't be covered up, it can't be harbored in any way. We have to fight sin, drastically, decisively deal with sin. Put it away. And when, when he says put it away, I thought about it this week, I don't, I don't think he means put it away like my kids put stuff away where they just throw their clothes on the floor. 
Because what happens? They end up putting it back on. One person like that. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Vote for Chris. Vote for Chris. They put it back on because it's easy. It's convenient. They smell it and like, that's not too bad. Let's put it back on. And the word he's saying is get rid of it. Peter, Peter says, you see it on your handout, that believers are to renounce, renounce any sin that does not accurately reflect the character of our Father, nor that which promotes unity amongst the people of God. All goes back to what holiness looks like back in verses 15 and 16. Hate anything about your life that is unholy. Shed it. Get rid of it. And this has always, always been God's call. Even back in, in Deuteronomy verses 20, chapter 22, verse 21, look what he says. He says, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Purge the evil from among you. He goes on in verse 22. He says, purge the evil from among you. In verse 24, purge the evil. After every single one of these things, he says, purge it. Get rid of every form. If you were to go to Ephesians 5, I mean, I just think about Ephesians 5 real quick. It says, it says, let no immorality, impurity, or any such thing even be named among you as is proper for saints. It doesn't say toy with it. It says no filthiness, no silliness, no coarse jesting, it says. It says it ought to be so weird for somebody to even mention a believer in the same sentence as those things because we're so distanced from it. And that's really what holiness is. Holiness is not how close can I get to the line without falling off. Holiness is how far away from the line can I run. It's not how close can I get to the world and still maintain some small little inkling of difference. No, it's how far away, how weird can I get to the world? How weird can I look to the world? It's not trying to blend in, it's getting away. Not, not being removed, but I'm saying in the sense where you're not effective and can't minister to them, we are to reach them with the gospel, but your life, my life, ought to be weird. There ought to be elements of our lives that are unbelievably weird to the world. And when they ask you why, here's the single reason. Because I have a heavenly Father who is holy. Because I've been redeemed by an imperishable seed that is the Word of God, and I have been called to be holy. That's the reason. And, and the sins, again, Peter doesn't name just any sins here. Peter names these, they all have something in common, and here's the problem. They do not reflect the character of our Father, and these sins destroy community and intimacy amongst fellow believers. Think about it. Totally opposite of our Father, and those things are, are intimacy and unity killers. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, gossiping. They're intimacy, unity killers. And that's the point. Purge them. Why? Because they do not accurately reflect your Father. Therefore, they're unholy, and they destroy the family dynamic amongst you as believers. So get rid of them. And that's why you see it on your handout. We must rid ourselves of these because they're incompatible with the call we saw last week of brotherly love. That's not how God has loved us. Therefore, do not love one another that way. God, God's not deceitful. 
He, he does, he's not malicious against us. There's no hypocrisy in him. There's no envy or slander. Get rid of them. It's contrary to who you are in Christ. And, and again, if it's, it's, it's go back to illustration of dieting. If you're dieting and you keep the junk food in the pantry, guess what's eventually going to happen? You're going to eat the junk food. I promise you, you're going to eat it. Toy with sin. Play with it. Keep it around. You're going there. You're going to go there. That's why he says, get rid of it. Throw it away. Hey, take the food, throw it away. You know, what he's, that's what he's saying here. Take, the, take these things off and throw them in the dumpster. Get rid of them. There's zero room in the body of Christ for those things right there. Zero tolerance. And again, not only it goes beyond just themselves to help us understand this, see the importance of what he's saying here. These believers that Peter writes to have left everything to follow Christ. They were suffering because they were believers. They were being treated unfairly by the world. They were being ostracized by the world. They were being ostracized by family, ostracized by friends. They had nobody except the body of Christ. And he's saying, look, those things, these, you believers, you get that from the world. You shouldn't get that from each other. The body of Christ was all they had. The body of Christ, fellow believers, are to be a refuge, a safe haven to avoid all the junk that they got from the world. They got treated with malice and envy and all this stuff in the world. He's saying, when you come into the family and you gather as a family, why do you get that same stuff? Doesn't make sense. We're to be a refuge from that junk. We're to be a refuge from all the stuff that goes on in the world. This, when we gather and our relationships together ought to be a refuge from the things of the world. And what Peter says, you'll see it there, is that the social alienation that the believers experienced due to the gospel and their identity in Christ was replaced, replaced what they lost, was replaced by genuine fellowship amongst the people of God. What they lost for following Christ, they gained amongst the people of God. And the question is, can that be said of our gatherings? Are we a safe haven for believers? Is our fellowship, is our, is our body free from that junk? Do we, or do we tolerate those sins? When you hear somebody committing those sins, do you tolerate it? When you hear gossip, do you tolerate it or do you confront it? Do you pass it on? And again, that goes with our craving for the Word. When we're truly craving the Word, we won't stand for those things. We'll put them away. Why? Because we are confronted with a picture in the Word of who our awesome God is and His holiness. And therefore, we look. it's like a mirror, the Bible says, that the, it's a word of God is a mirror and we see ourselves or who we truly are and areas of our lives that don't line up, that don't measure up. You know what we do? We get rid of them. Why? Because we're called to holiness. We're called to reflect our Father. And when we're craving the word, when we're feasting on the word, listen, we'll rid ourselves of those sins. Why? Because they don't measure up with the word. They don't measure up with who we're called to be in the word. And, and when the, those are things... Listen, I have a middle schooler 
Those are the things that he deals with in middle school. You know what? You know what middle schools are full of? Ask Jimmy Amorati. Immature, bunch of immature people. Immature. Alex shaking her head. Yeah. It's marks of immaturity, spiritual immaturity. I pray that we'll be a place that, that we put this nonsense away. As a sign, as an outflow of our craving of the Word and our craving to be like our Heavenly Father, our craving to further His kingdom, our craving that He would get glory through our lives. Through craving other things, we will put away the things that our bodies once craved. But, but not only have we got to put sin away, we've got to grow up in respect to salvation. Look at verse 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Again, ties directly in with our new birth. Lay every single thing aside that hinders growth and pursue that which causes growth, namely the Word. We gain, he'll say, again, in verse 3, if that word can be since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Gain new, gain new cravings. The word became, I love in Jeremiah, he says, your word became food and I ate them. Developing new, new, developing new tastes. Developing a taste and a hunger for the word. And, and you'll see on your hand out there, as we crave the word that fuels our putting, it, fuel, it fuels our putting away. And not only that, it fuels our growth. The, the word crave here is an intense desire. It is the picture, literally, of a baby and its milk. Listen, babies will not stop at anything until they get that bottle. They will make your life miserable until they get the bottle. A Amen. Fitting a dad would say that on Mother's Day. You notice no mom said that because you love, because you're a mom. You're patient and you love. Unlike us dads. But again, there's no substitute. There's no substitutes. Nourishment. Christ and the Scriptures are, are that which we live off of, that which we're nourished by. Again, he said it in verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that through the living and enduring Word of God. The Word must be primary in our lives for our nourishment if we're going to grow up. And, and this is how you grow up in respect to who you are in Christ and as the people of God, the Word. And the Word grow up literally, mean, it literally has a connotation of thriving. It's why God saved us. When we neglect the word, listen, we stunt our growth spiritually. We starve ourselves. Can you be a moral person? Yeah. Can you get by and fake it? Yeah. But you won't thrive spiritually without the word. You can fake it. Christianity was not meant to be lived in, your, in the, the effort of your flesh. It was be, meant to be lived through the power of the Spirit in you, richly dwelling in you. The Word of God, Colossians 3.16, richly dwelling in you. Therefore, whatever fills you controls you. It's the Word of God. And if we're going to grow up, the Word, no substitutes. I mean, we, we as believers, we got to be careful about what we eat. 
We've got to be careful about what we're feasting on, what we're allowing into our system. Because listen, I can eat a lot of junk food and my stomach will tell me I'm full. And you know what I've, you know what I've done for it? I've provided empty calories. I've actually hurt my body. I gave it calories, but I gave it calories that offered no real nourishment of what my body really, really needs to live off of. The world and all this other stuff that we substitute for the Word of God, you, you, you may feel full for a little bit, and you're going to be more hungry when that stuff goes away than you were before you put it in your body. Why? Because it's empty. It's empty. It's the Word of God. I mean, in, in, Ephesians, in, in Hebrews, Paul, Paul, oh, not Paul, I don't, know who, I don't know who wrote Hebrews, but whoever wrote Hebrews, chapter 5, he deals with this. He says, concerning him, verse 11, we have much to say and it's hard to explain. Listen to this. Since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracle of God, oracle of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, listen to this, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. How do we grow up? Through the word. In, in Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, Brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, you are now not even able to receive it, for you are still fleshly. Look at what he says. This is how he, quali- this is how he qualifies someone who's fleshly. Jealousy, strife. Are you not mere fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Same thing, same thing Peter mentions over here. We measure our maturity, again, not by how long you've been a believer. How, much, how well do you reflect Christ? How, how strongly are you putting away anything that doesn't reflect Christ? Not, not by, hey, I've, been, I've, been, I've, I've, I've called myself a believer for 25 years. Okay. Okay. Are you mature? Are you mature? And again, the point he makes is that we who have been born again through the word, we must continually nourish ourselves on that word. We never, ever, ever get beyond the word as believers. We will never get to a point where we do not need the word as believers. Specifically here, the gospel and the realities of the gospel. Go back to the gospel. We never wander far from the gospel in our identity. Our new birth requires sustenance, and it's the word. We are saved by the word, and we grow by the word. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 4. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. You you can go to Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16, a huge declaration about the word. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O God. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of my mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. 
John 17, 17 says your word is, is truth. It's pure. It's, it's free from all these, all these impurities. And again, again, even verse 3, if the word there could mean since, you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The same, the same God that is good for salvation is good for growth. The same gospel that is good for salvation is good for your nourishment. The same word that awakens you to eternal life is exactly what you need to live off of and thrive as a believer. To grow up. Again, God in Christ alone both conceives and sustains your life as a believer through the word. Crave the word. There is so much more of the Lord to be had than just the forgiveness of our sins, just our salvation. It's about putting away evil. It's about growing in grace. It's about growing in fellowship with both our Lord and one another. Otherwise, we will stunt our growth. I mean, ask my wife, why, why is it so hard to get volunteers in the nursery? Because nobody likes immaturity, because it's hard, it's difficult. But is that the way we are as believers? Immature, fighting over stuff that's nonsensical, jealousy, malice, gossip. We don't tolerate it in there, why would we tolerate it in here? Just because we're older? Peter's saying grow up, it's because of the word. Grow up. And we, we need to crave the Lord. Not only through the intake of the word, but by putting off sin, by hating sin, by, by adopting new attitudes, adopting new behaviors that we see in the word that align with the character of our father and align with the character of our family, asking God to do that in us. Being weird for the glory of God. And my challenge, and Peter's challenge for us, is to crave what is consistent, consistent with our new nature. Why? So that we can grow up. Put away anything that's inconsistent. Theology and ethics and right living, they, they, they meet right here. Take, take what you have learned, take what you see about God, and seek it. Shed, shed what is inconsistent with our Lord. Shed whatever does not create unity. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, if meat causes my brother to stumble, you know what I'll do? I'll never eat meat again. Why? Because he had a love for each other and a love for God that superseded his love for the things of this world. And if it creates disunity, it's out. You know what? To us, I guarantee you, you hear that, that sounds weird. Here's why. Because we don't, let's be honest, we don't love people the way that we ought. The way that God's loved us, and we see the effects of that. The, the issue is love. All of these other things, you know where they, they, they sprout from? They, they sprout from a lack of biblical love. But they also sprout from immaturity. And Peter is saying, look, keep your eyes on Christ. Understand, and lastly on your handout, it's, salvation is not simply a last-minute rescue operation. It's the consummation of a process. Again, it's the consummation of a process that God has begun in you as a believer. 
And, and here's what I mean by that. that that's a, a statement that I tried to figure out how do I say it without, without watering it down. But, but listen, in Romans 13, he says this, Do this, obey, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. You see the future aspect of your salvation? It's not simply, I was saved on August 4th, 1990. It's, I live in a certain way because one day I will be saved. It's future. It's hope-oriented. It's conforming our lives today based around that which will be perfected in the future. It may have begun a certain other day, but listen, it, can consummated, it is consummated in the future. And a real believer, a true believer, conforms their life today to that which will be a reality in the future. It's living holy today. Why? Because one day I will be made holy and complete. One day in salvation. Therefore, I live holy today based on what will be a reality in the future. It's not, it's not a one and done past act that has no bearing on your present life. Nowhere in the Bible do you see salvation represented that way. It's a trust. It's a hope. It's a future looking it's about being reconciled to God. It's about being reconciled to other people. And it's about representing the excellencies and the awesomeness of the God who did that. Might, might we as a people adopt that wider view of salvation beyond yourself? Understanding, believer, that you're a part of a community. You're a part of the people of God. It is about representing, it is about the, declaring the awesomeness, the excellency of the one who saved us. Way more than just about you. You're a part of a family. And every single one of us has been equipped to serve well, to play their role in that family to the glory of God. Every single one of us in here have been equipped by God to be a vital part of the community. Grow up. May we be a people who seek to put off anything in our lives that is inconsistent with the character of God and, and put off what doesn't promote unity. But at the same time, may we be creatures of the word. May we be cravers of the word. All to the glory of God, so that we can reflect, not only our Father, but so that we can grow up in respects to our salvation. Lord.